Morning, Mission View. How are you guys doing this morning? I was almost convincing. How are you doing this morning? All right, right. It's so good to see you. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at Mission View Church. If this is your first time here with us, we are so glad that you came to worship with us this morning. Sit back, relax. Hopefully you've enjoyed worship so far. I see friends from Greenville here today making the drive the four-hour commute to church this morning. Oh, man. Dave and Jody, thanks for coming. It's great to see you guys. Well, we are in a sermon series called Finding Joy. We're going through the book of Philippians. And I, I just tell you, I, I've always liked the book of Philippians, but as, as I've had time to really study it, go back through it, I like it more and more as I go through it. Just so much powerful stuff that, that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. I mean, he's in chains. He's far away from them, but he has this, this love in his heart for the church. I mean, you can, you can hear it almost dripping from every word. And you know, as, as we read these words, as we read God's word for us, man, I cannot help but think about the love that God has for us. Do you know today that God loves you? God truly loves you. He, he, loves, he loves us so much, in fact, that he sent his only son to die for us. A sacrifice, just an amazing, mind-boggling sacrifice that he would, he would make for you and I. Well, as we open God's word today, let's pray that he would use it to change us and grow us. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word, that this is more than just any old book. But this is alive, that is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces deep, deep into our souls, revealing to us who you are, revealing to us who we are. God, use it. Use it for your glory, for your kingdom, and for our good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Last week, we uh, went through the first half of chapter 1. This week we're going to finish up chapter 1 in Philippians. And um, I'm going to start in verse 12. Follow along with me here. It says this, <clears throat> I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, that is the good news, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I'm going to stop us right there and point out a couple of things I think are really important. One of the first things you can write down this morning is this, that what we find here and learn from Paul's suffering is that our suffering can serve to advance the gospel. You might want to write that down. Our suffering can serve to advance the gospel. Now, it would be easy for us to waste our suffering, to get caught up in what we have been given or what we haven't been given. In the wake of pain and suffering, our natural response is either to isolate or retaliate. Isolate 
or retaliate. None, not, neither one of these are good responses. But we've all done one or both of them, haven't we? Now, each of us will have a tendency to one of those two responses, but neither gets us to the point of dealing with our struggles in a healthy or godly way. Isolation is usually an expression of grief. Now, grief is a healthy, natural response to great loss. In fact, the Bible tells us to mourn with those who mourn. That, that we would, would grieve with those who grieve. That we would walk with one another through the struggles of life. Now, retaliation is an expression of anger. Now, anger is not sinful in and of itself, but rather what we do in our anger. I like to think of our emotions, all of our emotions, not anger, any of these other things, but all of our emotions as red flags. Like this, this blinking warning light just going off. Whether, whether it's this, this deep anger or frustration with someone or something in our life, or it's this amazing joy because of the blessings of God in our life. No matter what emotion comes across my mind or comes out of me, I like to look at it as this blinking red or yellow light saying, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on. Let's just take a minute here, Matt. Why is it? Why, why are you angry? I think it's this, this idea of this red flashing warning light. We need to ask ourselves some really, really important questions. Like, why am I angry? Why am I angry right now? You know, there's good anger and there's bad anger. We see good anger in Christ even. Do you remember when they had set up in the temple courtyards to sell, um, sell things for sacrifices to people as they're coming to church. Can you imagine that? They're ripping people off, selling sacrifices for worship, ripping people off. Jesus was upset. So upset, in fact, he goes off up onto a hill, weaves together some cords into a whip, and goes down and goes UFC on these guys. Turning tables over. Kicking him out of the temple. Jesus was offended at what they were doing in God's name. He was offended for God. Well, he was God, so, you know, that's Jesus. So there is an anger that we can have when people are maligning God or sharing a false gospel. It makes me angry that there are people who would, would take God's word and twist it and use it for their own benefit. Man, that gets me. That they would use it for getting money in their bank account or, or just take parts of it out, not, not give the whole thing here. They just take the parts they like out and say, you know, God just wants you to be rich and healthy and happy. That's all God cares about. Does that, is that what this book says? No, no. I, you know, it's funny. I started this sermon series uh, with a statement. As, as we talk about finding joy, I wanted to tell you that God is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. 
But it makes me angry that, that, that somebody would take God's word and twist it and use it for their own good. But what do I do in that anger? We pray. We pray for them that the Holy Spirit would move on their hearts, that God would reveal truth to them, that God would do what only he can do, that he would change man's hearts. Only God can do that. What we do in our anger is really, really important. But most of the time when we're talking about anger and our humanity, 99.9% of the time when I'm angry, it's a sinful anger. It's a sinful anger. I don't know about you, but, but when I get angry, it's usually because somebody has encroached upon my ease of life. Anybody else here? It's okay. Be honest. We're in church. I saw that quick hand. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's, it's complete. We could be honest here today. No, when people come in and, and they step on our toes, they make life a little harder than we thought it should be. Man, I get frustrated. I get angry. And I see that blinking yellow light going off in my head. God, why am I mad right now? I mean, do I really have a right to be mad right now? How about raising kids? Anybody ever been frustrated with your kids? Just me? Okay, okay, there's three of us here today that are frustrated with our kids every once in a while. No, it's hard. It's hard raising kids. And um, it, it, here's, here's a big thing that, that me and my wife have learned as we're raising our kids is we've started to look at them when they act out, when they sin— <laughs> really what it is, when they start doing things they shouldn't do and, and how that makes me feel. Like when they were little and we'd be out at a restaurant and, and uh, Noah's throwing the temper tantrum to end all temper tantrums. Anybody ever seen one of those? Screaming at the top of their lungs, completely unconsolable. You know, you're, you're at the edge of the table and you know how it is. Every eye in the restaurant's looking at you like going, wow, that guy's the worst dad in the world right? You're just, you start to get red. You start to sweat. You're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Noah. Would you just chill out? We think to ourselves, why am I so frustrated? Me and my wife started looking at these instances differently. Instead of, you know, being embarrassed for myself, I'd start saying, God, what are you doing right now? Well, first off, he's, he's humbling me. He's working in my heart. And praise God for it, because I need it. But secondly, he said, Matt, these, these are opportunities for Noah's growth. You know, when, when our kids act up and they do things sinfully, God is giving us an opportunity to speak his word into their little hearts. If I can get my mind off of myself and my embarrassment— and start looking at these activities of sinfulness in my kids as opportunities to actually really speak into our kids' lives. To actually parent, right? Opportunities to really speak into life. So I, we start looking at those things as opportunities for their growth. What about, what, if, what about this emotion of joy or happiness? You know, there's good happiness and bad happiness. Think about it. Like, like, if I am so happy, you know, that, that 
God is at work and God's kingdom is, is, is growing and all these things. That is a great happiness for the glory of God. But let's say somebody has said um, some bad things about me or, or somebody cuts me off in traffic and then I'm driving five miles down the road and that car that cut me off and was driving all crazy is wrecked into a tree and I'm like, ha, 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 got what he deserved. That's bad happiness, right? That's bad. That is bad happiness. Or let's say somebody's been talking behind our backs. They've been saying bad things about us. And we pull up Facebook on our phone, Instagram, Snapchat. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Next thing you know, it's got 500 views. and You're like, ha, ha, ha. Got what they deserved. Got them back. That's not good happiness. That is sinful happiness. All of these emotions that we go through in life, start looking at them as these blinking warning lights. God, what are you doing in me right now in this joy? What are you doing in me right now in this worry? What are you doing in me right now in this anger? God, what in me needs to change? What in me needs to grow? You see, God uses our circumstances to show us our hearts. Think about it. Our emotions only get the best of us when we're under pressure. Either good pressure or bad pressure, doesn't matter, either one. When God allows the things of this world to press down on us and squeeze us tightly, what comes out? When you squeeze an orange, you get what? Or apple juice, no. Orange juice. You don't get apple juice from an orange. When you squeeze sinners, what comes out? Sin. Sin. Now, there are those times in our life, by God's grace, praise the Lord, that, that the world presses down on us and squeezes us and righteousness comes out. Praise the Lord, right? All glory to God. But there are those times in our life when God allows the pressures of this world to squeeze us and press us down that we see who we really are. We see our hearts for what they really are. It is God's grace. It is God's grace working in us to show us those things. It's hard, it's hard to look at that as grace because it's hard and it's painful. And it's real. But we have to start looking at those things as God's actual grace. You know what he's saying when he does that? He's saying, I love you. I love you. And you know what? Those things that have been hidden deep down in your heart, man, that's it's not the best for you. It's not my best for you. So as you go through this and you work your way through this struggle, you work your way through this pain, I'm with you. And I've got something better for you. Paul was under great pressure and suffering. Now, there are a few things we can learn from Paul about dealing with suffering. And you might want to make note of these, just a couple of things I've pulled out of here. The first thing is avoid isolating ourselves. We need to avoid isolating ourselves. Here, Paul is in jail, in prison, in chains. What's he doing? What's he doing? 
Well, first of all, he's sharing the gospel, obviously, with all his jailers. He's like, man, even they know that I'm in here on, because of Christ. This is great. I'm sharing the gospel here in prison. And what else does he do? He's writing letters. He's writing letters to churches. Be active in your Christian relationships. Avoid isolating yourself. Be active in your Christian relationships. Paul wrote letters. Write out your thoughts and prayers. Start journaling. I mean, if you're going through something really difficult, I would encourage you to, to really journal your prayers, your thoughts. Write those things down. Don't miss church or community group. Man, when you're going through something, man, it is so good to be in relationship with others. Now, take time out for yourself, but don't isolate. There, there's a balance there. Like we need to take time out for ourselves. Self-care, those are all good things. But we also need to stay active in our Christian relationship with others. So how do, we, how do we balance that out? Especially when we're in the midst of suffering, it's easy to get kind of lost in the, the midst of it. How, so how do we balance that? How is, where do you draw the line from isolation and self-care? Trust your closest Christian friend. That's why it's so important to be in relationship with other believers. If, you're, if your best buddy calls you up and says, hey, dude, I haven't seen you in like three weeks. Are you right? <laughs> You're probably isolating. That's probably isolation. But just go and ask him, hey man, as I'm going through this really hard time, hey, could you just hold me accountable? I, I don't want to just lock myself up at my house and, and, and wallow in the worries and struggles that I'm going through, man. I give, you, I give you permission, man. Call me, text me, and I'll be honest with you. Being relationship. If you're going through something really difficult today, we want you to know that you are not alone. You are not alone. That you have brothers and sisters in Christ that care for you and want to be there for you. We want to pray with you. We want to walk through these struggles of life together with you. Don't do it alone. Let's move on. Start in verse 15 here. It says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. There's that word again, rejoice, joy. This is crazy. Are we more concerned with what others say about us, or that God be glorified and the gospel be spread? Ask yourself that question today. Am I more concerned with what others say about me or that God be glorified and the gospel be spread? Paul could have easily started a fight. Oh, yeah? That's kind of, that's kind of our initial, initial reaction, right? If, if somebody's saying something about us or trying to make us look bad. Paul could have easily just gone off on somebody. But he doesn't. He says... The gospel's being spread. Woo! Yeah! It's all about Jesus. Even though they're doing it with the wrong motives. 
my mind was blown when I started really diving into this. This is crazy. Second thing you could write down is this. Rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Inasmuch that it is a full gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ crucified, rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. What we see right here is that Paul had an amazingly, amazingly God-centered life. Now the culture around us tells us to focus on me, myself, and I. To look out for numero uno, number one. Even from the time we were little, everything is built up around us. We need to go from a me mentality to a Christ-centered mentality. Picture this with me if you can. Do we have this graphic? We're going to get super high-tech on you today. Do we have this graphic? Oh, there it is. Awesome. Great job, Jordan. Okay, so this is kind of how we're raised, right? So if, if I'm thinking about my life, I've got, this is my life, okay? So it'd be different for everybody else. But we got, I've got school, seminary. I've got my wife and I've, I've got my kids. I've got my friends over here. I've got God right here. I've got my job. I've got my church. I've got my hobbies and all these other things. And I, we try and balance these things, right? They're like these plates. Have you seen the spinning plates? People are old. We got all these plates. We're trying to balance. And, and this is kind of, of how we view our lives, this is not a biblical view of our lives. All right, switch the slide to a biblical view of life. Ah, ah, that's much better. You see, in that first picture, all of those things around me depend on me. They find their life, their sustenance, their existence around me. I'm responsible for all these things. And without me, they you surely fall apart. But as we train our minds to, to kind of view life like Paul views life, to be completely God-centered life, God is the sustainer and life giver. And my wife, Janelle, is his, not mine. She is fully his. My kids are not my, they're his kids. Entrusted unto me. School and hobbies and mission view and me, my well-being and, and my friends, they are all his. Now this is both just great and I can take a deep breath, but it's also terrifying because I don't have control. In this picture, I don't have control. God's in control. And for, for some of us, for most of us, it's like, ah, I, I gotta get my hands in this, on this, with this. I gotta have this perfect little box that, that my wife goes in and I can do this, 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 and this, and she'll be happy. And I gotta do this for my kids and control them and, and, and you know, make sure everything's perfect and everything's right. And if they get up at 8 a.m., they make their bed and they go to school and they, they get A's on their grade card and they come home and I give them the scriptures and I train them and they're in bed by 9.30. And the next thing you, we know, our lives are built around what? Me when they're meant to be built around God. Paul had an amazingly 
God-centered view of life. We need to have an amazingly God-centered view on life. Amen? All right. Thanks, Pat. (laughs) I'm just playing. All right. Let's move on. Yes, and I will rejoice, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I am hard pressed between the two, though. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What we get out of here, you can write this one down. Point number three, we only truly live when we find the one worth dying for. To live is Christ and to die is is gain. Man. Paul's view of life, God-centered view of life, comes in full fruition right in this statement. To live is Christ. That everything that I have, that everything that I do, all the relationships that God has brought into my life, he has purpose for. He has purpose for. How often do we live out our lives in relationship with others and it's, it's just a round of golf on the golf course or it's just a, a cup of coffee at Starbucks or it's just a, a game of basketball on the basketball court and it's just talking about the weather or how was work this week? To live is Christ means that he is always on the forefront of our minds. He is always a part of our conversations. That underneath all of this stuff, all these struggles and and all of these joys and, and all the life that happens, that Christ is there. That Christ is there. It is all about him. Paul found meeting in life through a selflessness to Christ. You know, the church always, always flourishes when under persecution. Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl was imprisoned by the Nazis during the Holocaust. Once set free, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which became a perennial bestseller. In it, Frankl shared an all-important lesson he had learned from his suffering. He said this, There is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning 
in one's life. Knowing God gives meaning to life. Obeying God gives purpose to life. If God is real, we have a job to do. Now, I want to take a minute, and I want you to look at the empty seats in this room. Just look around and start counting them. Every one of these seats represent a soul that is going to hell. If God is real, we have a job to do. We want, we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ so that, so that people can come into right relationship with God. The gospel is simple and it is this, that God loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live and then die a sinner's death that you and I deserve. And on the third day, he rose again after being crucified and killed. And he was eyewitnessed by over 500 eyewitnesses. And then he ascended into heaven and even now sits at the right hand of God the Father, interceding, making a place for you and I one day. We want to share that powerful, life-changing, life-giving news with everyone that we meet. We all have neighbors living in our neighborhoods, family members in our families, friends in our circle of friends that don't know that amazing life-giving truth. And they don't know it. You know what that means is that they will go to hell one day. That is real. God has to do a work in us to impassion us for the lost. That the good news that has changed you and me would be a good news that changes everyone we meet. Knowing God gives meaning to life and obeying God gives purpose to life. Now here's the kicker. It takes God to know God. That everything that we say, everything that we do, every word that I preach is fully and completely dependent on God being God. That as we open up his word on Sunday mornings, or as we open up his word in our community groups, or as we share God's good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, friends, and family members, we are completely dependent on God that he's going to show up and do what only he can do. That, that is why we are here. That is why we are here, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, 
striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Man, this is, as I was studying this this week, God really pointed something out to me. I had always read this. And you know this part here in 27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? The first thing, to, I'll just be honest, the first thing that came to my mind as I heard that was this, the things that we should do. Like, you know, the list that we kind of create in our minds. I want to be a good person. You know, I want to share the gospel. I want to, to do what's right. I, you know, I, I don't want to go see our movies, keep it to a PG-13 or under, you know. I want to, um, you know, not do this, not do this, but do this, do this, and that list of things. That's, that's a life worthy of the gospel would be a good life, right? But if we actually read and focus on the context in which Paul reads this, he's actually talking about a life in community with other believers. Crazy. Just God really pointed this out. In one spirit, being guided by the Holy Spirit, God in us directing us to selflessness for others. This is an others-mindedness that transcends our abilities apart from Christ. And it goes along with the next thing Paul says, with one mind, moving together for a purpose, the mission of sharing the good news of Jesus with every man, woman, and child in our communities, giving them a chance to see, hear, and experience the love of God. He goes on to say, striving together. Now, this, this word striving comes from the Greek word syntheleo, and it means to struggle together or labor together. It's alluding to sweat and tears and pain of real struggle and hard work against opposition. Now, all of this, all of this is written in community, together. That we go through all of these things together. That a life worthy of the gospel is lived out in community. In community. We need each other. That's what Paul's saying. A life worthy of the gospel isn't a life that follows all the rules and does everything right and, and every, you know, every commandment. Now that we great and we're all striving towards that. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking that us, Mission View Church, we would be unified. That's what he's saying. A life worthy of the gospel is a life unified together, focused on mission with a purpose for his kingdom together. Do you want to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we? Come on, say it like you mean it. Amen? Then we have to get on the same page. We have to care for one another. This others-mindedness that Paul had in unity together for the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I can't say it strongly enough. We need each other. If you are not connected with other believers, doing life together, you are missing out on what God has for you. It is plain and clear, straight from God's word. Now, we are getting ready to launch our community groups here at Mission View. And we're so excited about what we've seen God do in the community groups that exist already. But I want to encourage you to sign up for one of the community groups. If you're not in a community group, lead or host or, or be a part of a community group. This is what God's calling us to, that we would do life together. It's what he has for us. We have all the resources you need. There will be a training to get you started. Take that risk, that leap of faith, and see what God does in your life. Man, I love this book, and especially Philippians. Have you, have you enjoyed the sermon series so far? Okay, awesome, man. I'm, I've really enjoyed studying it. Next week, we're going to dive into chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 of Philippians is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It's going to be an amazing study. We're going to start out by looking at the humility of Christ as the perfect example for us. I, I don't know about you, but, but I, I struggle with pride. God's always working in me and on me. You know, it, pride is like this, this sneaky, you, know, you don't see it. It's like in our lives and in our hearts, but we don't see it. it Pride makes us blind to our own blindness, right? And, and it's something we don't see until God reveals it to us. I mean, only God can open our eyes to our pride. And, and here's the deal, folks. We all have pride. I hate to break it to you if you're sitting out there and saying, oh man, Matt, I don't deal with pride. That's pride. No, we, we all have pride active in our lives. The, the, the question isn't, do we have pride? The question is, where is pride active in my life right now? God, where is pride active in my life right now? That's why if, uh, Philippians 2 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Because it is like right to the point. It's talking about Christ's model of humility for us. And I love it. It says things in two verses, I think it's three and four, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. So this, this theme of, of others-mindedness and community that, that we've heard all through chapter one really just continues into chapter two as, as God, God gives us through Paul this, this view of humility in Christ. So, man, I'm really excited about the uh, sermon next week, and I'm, and I'm loving this sermon series so far. I hope you are too. I think God's using it to grow us and change us for his glory. So let's just pray and, and uh, focus our hearts and minds on Christ. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And um, as we've um, begun this study through Philippians, I just thank you. I thank you for the work that you're doing in my heart, uh, the conviction that you brought to my heart that, that I would go and share your good news with more people, that I would, I would be more involved with, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. 
God, give each and every one of us the courage it takes to step out of our comfort zone and, and really take that risk to dive into relationship with, with other, other people, other believers, God. Let us get out of our comfort zone and, and share the good news of Jesus Christ with those people that, that scare us a little bit. God, we pray that we be your people, focused on your kingdom, your good news, that it wouldn't be about us. It would be about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the only one who is worthy of, of all the glory. So, Father, we give it all to you. To your name be all glory, honor, and praise, and no other. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.